0: Our great God and Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can meet together this evening, that you have given us the opportunity and privilege of gathering as your people, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and meeting to sing these songs, to lift our prayers before your throne. And to open your word and study from it, we pray that you would bless the time that we are together this night, that you would bless our study, that you would help us to rightly divide and rightly apply your word, and that you would continue to grow us in grace and faith and hope and in holiness of life. We are thankful, God, for your protection and providence over the first half of this week. We are thankful for the prayers that you have answered, and for brothers and sisters whom you have helped through medical procedures and continue to sustain even though it be through difficult trials. We pray, O God, that your blessing and favor would rest upon each one according to their need and that your good and perfect will would be done, that you would relieve suffering, that you would grant clarity of mind and heart, that you would sanctify your people through these trials and show forth your power and goodness to us. We ask your blessing upon our nation, O God, that you would raise up God-fearing men to lead us, that you would restrain the folly and overthrow the wickedness of those who do now lead us. We pray, O God, that you would put the fear of you within their hearts, that you would turn their hearts even as you turn the water in its courses, that your good and perfect will would be done in this land. And we do pray, O God, that more and more you would awaken the citizens of this nation to see their need for you and the authority of your Son. We thank you, O God, that you have blessed us as a congregation. We pray that you would continue to do so, that we would grow in grace and in good works, that you would use this church as a bright light in this community and beyond this community, and that you would build up your saints and protect and sanctify your people in every place. Watch over us tonight and help us in this hour of study. We pray in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to start with three passages of scripture tonight, and then you have some rough notes that uh, are not like the notes I normally give you. Uh, Typically, I'll give you a manuscript or I'll give you an expository outline that kind of has complete sentences you can read and follow. What you have tonight is more a collection of quotations, bullet points, a couple of charts that I'm going to refer to as we introduce this next section of our study. In June and July, we took snapshots of early and medieval Christianity and Christian history. Uh, Dane and Caleb and I were rotating through that, and Dane and I did talk about possibly continuing that for a little bit longer, maybe even through the month of August, but it really was my plan once that summer period was over to move on into other themes, and so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to start a series uh, on an optimistic eschatology. And this is a series that I've intended to do for some time and have been working toward, and uh, we'll, we'll have a little bit more to say about that uh, in just a minute. But to set the table for our study, I want to look at three passages, one from the book of Psalms, Psalm 22, that we just sang, another from the prophets, Isaiah chapter 2, that we'll look at next, and then one from the New Testament, the Great Commission that you know well, uh, coming from Matthew chapter 28. So let me read those passages with you as we begin. Psalm 22, a psalm of the suffering of the Messiah and the conquest that he makes over sin, death, and the devil. Listen as the Lord speaks by promise in the latter part of this psalm, beginning in verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is Yahweh's. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. And so we still do. God is still declaring the righteousness of the Lord, and in this sense, the righteous work of the Lord in salvation, his covenant faithfulness, his rescuing his people from sin by the sacrifice of himself, that is continuing to be proclaimed. But what is the promise? Verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to Yahweh. All families of the nation shall worship before you. That's not a promise that every single person throughout the world or at any point in uh, human history is going to be a Christian, in a true and regenerate sense. But it certainly is a promise of more than just a remnant of people from every nation turning to the Lord. It says more than just that. Let's turn now to Isaiah chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2, uh, promise and prophecy that you're very familiar with. Again, it's a different genre, it's a different type of literature. Listen to the first five verses of that chapter. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Now again, this is not a promise that every person around the world, every individual in every nation is going to be uh, regenerated, born again, and converted to the Lord, but it's a promise of more than just a pilgrim remnant among all nations. It's, it's more than just a, a sprinkling of people from around the world. This is, this is the kind of influence, this gospel ministry, the latter days, we, we understand, hopefully, we'll see that more of that in this study, uh, is a reference to the new covenant. It's a reference to the messianic kingdom. It's a reference to the age in which we now live. The apostles say we're living in the last days, in the latter days, right now. And in that time... What God is promising to do is send forth the light of the gospel, the truth of his word, with such power that it has a transforming effect upon the nations. So that things like wars are coming to an end. So that many people are going up to Jerusalem and saying, teach us the word of God. We want to know his way. And then in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 28, and this is one of just... Many passages in the New Testament that we could look at and that we will look at, Lord willing, over the next several weeks. But this one you know very well, but I would remind you of it here in this context. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. After his resurrection, immediately prior to his ascension, Jesus came and spoke to his disciples, saying, "'All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. "'Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, what is the command? It's not to make disciples of people from within or among the nations. It is literally to disciple the nations. It is to make the nations disciples. Now, maybe you know a little Greek, and you could say, well, pastor, nations there really just means the Gentiles. Right, fine. So Jesus says, go and make the Gentiles disciples. Now, that doesn't promise that every single non-Jewish person is going to become a Christian. But it does promise far more than just a handful of people Representatively from each nation and tribe is going to be converted. The plan of the gospel, the Great Commission, is an extension, it's an interpretation, it's an application of the dominion mandate. Go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. What are we supposed to fill the earth with? We're not supposed to fill the world with unbelievers. It's not just a promise of, you know, biological reproduction. It's not just saying, go out and have a bunch of babies so that the world can be full of people that do not know God. That's not what it's saying. It's saying, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it to who? Subdue it to you? Subdue it to Christ. Baptize the nations and teach them to observe Jesus as Lord. Because He's Lord not just in the church, but He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Now... Several weeks ago, it might have been a couple of months ago, uh, someone came to me and said, you know, I know we have this optimistic eschatology, but what would be like the one good book, a simple, short primer on eschatology that I could read and kind of understand better the biblical case for it? Now, I have stacks of books on this topic in my library. I have, I think, a lot of books that I've read on this subject over the years, and I have some that I really do like that I don't think are particularly difficult. Depending on what question of eschatology you have, I might recommend one or another. Uh, you know, if it's just a general uh, overview of postmillennialism that you want, I would probably say that Keith Matheson's book Postmillennialism uh, is the one to to go to there. But but you know, I, I didn't have exactly what this person was looking for. I mentioned to them, I, I just ordered another book that might be it, and it arrived, and I read it, and I thought, nope, that's not it. Uh, and, and then I remembered that about three years ago, when I was finally coming to terms with and about to come out of the closet as a post-millennialist, um, I remembered that I'd come home one day, and I'd, and I'd asked myself the question, if someone asked me, why are you... Post millennial in your eschatology, what would I say? And I thought, I wonder how many reasons I have. And I sat down and I very quickly outlined 15 reasons that I felt like were pretty substantive, that were exegetical and theological, that that were pretty substantive. In fact, you have those 15 reasons at the end of your outline. And they're going to form kind of the basis of the outline of our study. And we'll talk more about how we're going to use that a little bit later. And I thought, well, you know, that would would make a pretty decent little study just introducing the theme of an optimistic eschatology. So that's been sitting in a file on my computer for about three years. And I thought, you know, maybe since I don't have exactly the book to recommend at this point, not not that there's any shortage of books and not that there's even a shortage of good books on the topic. Many of you have read some very good books on this topic already. But I thought maybe we ought to just have a class on this question. And so that's what we're going to begin tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about what it means to have an optimistic eschatology. Now, in the context of that, we're going to be using some theological terms that we're going to need to define tonight and that I'll remind you of as we go through the study over the next several weeks. Uh, I am going to be advocating for something that's typically called postmillennialism, but but as as we talked about in a couple of sermons a year and a half, two years ago, I'm not as interested in what eschatological position you adopt, as I am interested in your eschatological perspective. You could be a historic premillennialist and still be very optimistic in your view of the future of this present world. You could be an amillennialist and still be reasonably cheerful and hopeful about the future of this present world. For that matter, you could be a postmillennialist and believe that the present world's going to hell in a handbasket and just walk around looking like you were weaned on a dill pickle. And I'm interested in encouraging you to think about eschatology in an optimistic frame. In fact, I believe that the Bible requires that we do so. Now, in order to get there, we need to do some preliminary work. And the first thing I want to share with you is a quote from kind of the most vanilla... Uh, general, very good, very faithful systematic theology. This is the one we always recommend candidates who are preparing for licensure or ordination use, that they study this one before their exams, because uh, Burkhoff's systematic theology It's not going to get you in any trouble. It's kind of right down the middle of the road. It's nobody's favorite systematic, and it's, and it's just good for everyone. And this is what he says at the beginning of his section on eschatology. Quote, A doctrine of the last things is not something that is peculiar to the Christian religion. Wherever people have seriously reflected on human life, whether in the individual or in the race, they have not merely asked whence did it spring and how did it come to be what it is, but also whither is it bound. They raised the question, what is the end or final destiny of the individual? And what is the goal towards which the human race is moving? Does man perish at death? Or does he enter upon another state of existence, either of bliss or of woe? Will the generations of men come and go in endless succession and finally sink into oblivion? Or is the race of the children of men and the whole creation moving on to some divine telos, an end designed for it by God? And if the human race is moving on to some final, some ideal condition perhaps, will the generations that have come and gone participate in this in any way? And if so, how? Or did they merely serve as a thoroughfare leading up to the grand climax? Naturally, only those who believe that, as the history of the world had a beginning, it will also have an end, can speak of a consummation and have a doctrine of eschatology, end quote. It's a long quote, but I think it's a really helpful one because what Berkhoff is pointing out there is that eschatology is inevitable, right? It's like R.C. Sproul said in one of his latter works, everyone is a theologian. Everyone is a theologian because everyone has some idea of what they believe about God, even if they believe that they themselves are God in the universe. Everyone's a philosopher. Everyone deals with ultimate questions, even if they're living their life in a way trying to avoid the ultimate questions. And in that sense, eschatology is inevitable. Where did you come from, but also why are you here? What's the goal? What's the purpose? What's the end toward which your life is moving? And what will that end be like? And not just you individually, but of the human race, of this world, of the universe as we know it. And these are the questions that eschatology deals with. Now, this is not going to be a series of studies on eschatology as a whole, we're going to be dealing a little bit more narrowly with particular eschatological questions. But I want you to understand that eschatology is a big topic. Eschatology is from a, a, it's a combination of two Greek words that you know, whether you know that you know them or not. Eschatos is last end or, or last things. And logos, in this context, when it comes as a suffix to a word, it's the study of something, right? Theology is the study of God. Anthropology is the study of, of man. Zoology is the study of life, specifically of animal life. Right? Eschatology is the study of last things. It's the study of the end. But I want you to understand that it's not just the study of the end in the sense of the termination point. It's the study of the future, the goal, the purpose. And in that sense, eschatology is related to another term that's not on your hand do- handout, but it's Teleology, right? You, you heard uh, Berkhoff use this word telos, right? The idea of the purpose, the goal, the perfection, the maturation of something. Well, the study of the goal, the study of the purpose is what eschatology is all about. Now, when you're studying eschatology, you're going to hear terms related to the millennium a lot. The millennium is Jesus' thousand-year reign that is described in Revelation chapter 20. Everybody believes, by the way, everybody believes that the millennium is discussed in other places in the Bible as well, both in the Old and the New Testaments. But nobody agrees on exactly what those other passages are. And the reason is that the reference explicitly to Christ's thousand-year reign is only found in one place in your Bible, and that's in Revelation 20. So everybody says, Revelation 20, there's the, there, there's the millennium. And everybody says, it's, it's found in some other parts of the Bible, but we can't seem to agree on what other parts of the Bible definitely reference it. So, for example, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66... How, how are these to uh, be understood in, relation, in relationship to that millennial promise that Jesus will reign? And then from that, you get the major schools of thought, the major positions in terms of eschatology. And you know what these are. I realize all of this is, is pretty familiar to, to you. Uh, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And really, those three positions are really two positions and two subpositions. So let me t- explain what I mean by that. Everybody who is a Christian, everyone who has uh, any type of a biblically informed faith, anyone who affirms that Jesus is going to come again and that there will be a reign of Christ, such as described in Revelation chapter 20, everyone either believes that Jesus is going to return before the thousand-year reign begins or after the thousand-year reign is completed. So there really are only two possibilities here. You are either a premillennialist or a postmillennialist. If you're a premillennialist, you believe that Jesus is going to return, and then the thousand-year reign is going to begin. If you're a postmillennialist, you believe that the thousand-year reign is going to happen, whatever it looks like, whatever form it takes, it's going to happen, and then Jesus is going to return at the completion of it. Those are the two basic positions. Now, each of those positions has two forms. And so if you... If, I need my whiteboard. I really thought about teaching on the floor and just using my whiteboard tonight because I think in dry erase marker. But you could just imagine this in your mind or you could flip your hand out over and you can draw this out with your pen, right? If you're thinking about these two possibilities, premillennialism and postmillennialism, well, there are two types of premillennialism and there are two types of postmillennialism. Now, in fairness, that's, that's still too general, Right? Oh, I know a bunch of different kinds of premillennialists. I know a number of different kinds of dispensational premillennialists. And that, that itself is its own subcategory. So really, we're painting with broad brushes. But I think the generalization is, uh, is fair and is, and is helpful, right? So the two types of premillennialists, you have historic premillennialists. And you have what we could call dispensational premillennialists, premillennialists that have adopted a dispensational framework for their theology, okay? Now, you could see on the first page of your handout uh, a uh, kind of a a chart depicting these possibilities. You see the top two. Post-tribulational premillennialism is the historic premillennialism that's found as far back as the second century, as a matter of fact, right? So the second century writer Irenaeus it seems pretty clearly to have a premillennial eschatology. One of my seminary professors, in fact, most of my seminary professors were premillennialists. One of my seminary professors was a historic premillennialist. And so he was very eager to point out to us, he said, when does premillennialism first appear? I said, second century. He's like, that's right, that's really early. It's really early. I said, it is really early. He said, when does millennialism first appear? And I said, the Apostle Paul. He didn't appreciate that as much, right? <laughs> but the, the point is that this post-tribulational premillennialism has been around a long time. That's why we call it historic premillennialism, because it really is structurally different than the type of premillennialism that is more familiar to most people today, right? Historic premillennialism says that there is going to that the history of the earth is going to continue uh, as it is until God's purpose in this present age is completed, right? And there are several things that can go into that. And then there's going to be a period of tribulation. And the church will be on earth during that. The church will suffer during that. And then Jesus is going to return. And he's going to establish a thousand-year reign. And it will be a glorious period on earth where the kinds of promises that we see in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, the ends of the earth turning to the Lord, the nations flowing to Jerusalem, all of these things are going to happen because Jesus is going to be on the earth, he's going to be reigning at Jerusalem, and there is going to be worldwide peace. And that's going to continue for a thousand years, after which there will be a final rebellion of some sort, and then the final judgment and eternal state. Now that's a really ancient idea. And there have been a lot of really brilliant Christians down to the present day who believe that that is what the Bible teaches. That's a premillennial view. A newer version of premillennialism is dispensational premillennialism, or what they will sometimes refer to as pre-tribulational premillennialism. Now, Dispensationalists will claim that their version of premillennialism goes all the way back to the early church. They will claim Irenaeus and other writers as if they themselves affirmed what the modern dispensationalists do today. But in fact, there's really no evidence to support that and a considerable amount of evidence to the contrary. The dispensational premillennialist says that before the tribulation begins on earth, the church is going to be secretly raptured it's going to be taken away. They believe that this is described in Revelation chapter 4 where John is caught up into the heaven and is in the throne room of God. And they believe that Revelation chapter 4 to chapter 19, the church is not on earth during the events uh, uh, of that period. There's a seven-year period of tribulation in which there is great lawlessness and great suffering and just tremendous rebellion on earth. And then Jesus will return and establishes thousand-year reign, and so on and so forth. Now, that it's a considerably more complex idea, but it's defined by the fact that the church is not present on earth during it. If you look on the back of your, your first page, you will notice in a little bit more detail that dispensational idea. And this should, be, should give you some idea of some of the additional moving parts. Now, my purpose is not to really describe this in a lot of detail. If you're curious about this, we've got a a video class that we did a couple of years ago on this topic, and I can give you uh, that reference later on. But you have two types of premillennialism: premillennialists who believe that the church is going to remain on earth until Jesus returns, and they're going to go through the period of suffering and tribulation, and premillennialists who believe that the church is going to be taken away and is going to escape the suffering and tribulation. And you might imagine, well, it doesn't really matter very much which of those ideas you believe, but I used to think that too, and I have become convinced to the contrary because I've taught so many classes now with dispensational premillennialists who maintain without any embarrassment that they are hoping, trusting, looking toward the rapture as their Christian hope. And maybe they're just simply untaught, maybe that's not what their pastors or theological instructors would want them to say, but in Scripture, the resurrection of the dead, the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead is always the Christian's hope. There is one hope, not many, and it is always the day of resurrection when Christ returns. And I would say that it does seem to make quite a difference because when I have studied the book of Revelation, for example, or different parts of the prophets with my dispensational friends, and they find out that there may not be a biblical basis for that rapture where the church is taken away and spared the experience of tribulation, I have found them greatly dismayed. In fact, I've had some of them say, But maybe I won't remain faithful if I have to be on earth during the tribulation. I think, why exactly did you think that you were going to remain faithful before the tribulation? I mean, that would raise some questions about their understanding of perseverance and what lies behind that, what enables that. So I do think it matters what you believe about that. That doesn't mean that dispensational premillennialism is heresy. I'm not saying that these are false brothers. I'm just saying that theology matters. And what you believe about the future informs the way that you are living in the present. I believe that a lot of the cultural problems that we are having is the result of the proliferation of a theology that is fundamentally dualistic and Gnostic in the American church that says we have sacred and secular spheres and they are airtight compartments. The church is to stay in her lane and that does not involve the work of the common kingdom. And you don't want to polish the brass on the Titanic. The ship is going to hit an iceberg and it's going to quickly sink. So what is the point of waxing the floors? Now, not everyone is consistent with those implications of their theology. But I do believe many Christians have been consistent with that implication of their theology. And I think it has led to the weakening of the church and the loss of cultural influence that has given rise to the kind of rabid, rampant secular pluralism that we have today. So theology does matter. So we've got two versions of premillennialism over here, and then we've got two versions of postmillennialism as well. Remember, postmillennialists simply believe that Jesus is going to return after or at the end of the thousand-year reign. Now, the postmillennialists are not as wed to the idea that the reign of Christ has to be exactly a thousand years. There might be some who would believe that, some postmillennialists who would affirm that. There have been historically... Most postmillennialists are going to say that that thousand-year reign is probably a figurative number like every other number in the book of Revelation. Remember that Revelation is the book that in chapter 1 tells us there are seven Holy Spirits. I don't think anybody believes that there are nine persons in the Trinity. You couldn't even call it the Trinity if there are nine persons in it, right? So we recognize that Revelation uses figurative numbers... And so I think most postmillennialists, maybe not all, but most postmillennialists would say that thousand-year reign is a description of a really long period. It's a long it's a thousand years. It's not it's not seven days, right? It's not a few months, it's it's a thousand years. It's a long period of time, however long that actually proves to be. And Christ is going to reign during that period. And his reign is going to be associated with the gospel conquering the nations, conquering the world, going forth like that rider on the white horse in Revelation chapter 6, riding out, conquering and to conquer. And the postmillennialist believes that at the end of that period, Jesus is going to return. Now, we said there are two basic types of postmillennialists who believe this. One are called postmillennialists and one are called amillennialists. Now, amillennialists, they have a long pedigree. Augustine is usually recognized as kind of the first definite amillennialist in church history. So the 5th century, that's what what my church professor wanted me to say. right? He wanted me to admit that amillennialism was a lot more recent than historic premillennialism. Usually, Augustine is, is regarded as the first true amillennialist in the history of the church. But it also is an ancient idea. Amillennialism, the name itself, the a prefix, means not a millennium, right? That there's not a millennium. That's really kind of a misleading name. Uh, Amillennialists don't deny that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ. But what they affirm is that that reign of Christ is over a spiritual kingdom that is largely invisible, not entirely, because the church represents visibly that kingdom of God in this world but that that spiritual kingdom runs parallel through human history with the kingdom of darkness. And so an all-millennialist will typically say, 1 John chapter 5 says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so the world on one side is the kingdom of Satan, and then the kingdom of Christ on the parallel track is to be distinguished from it. Now, amillennialists believe that the kingdom of light is going to make progress during the reign of Christ prior to His return. And that the kingdom of darkness is going to also make progress. In other words, that there is going to continue to be a struggle. That the church is going to succeed in her mission. I want to be very clear about this. She's going to succeed in her mission. She's going to evangelize the nation. She's going to go forth into all the world. There are going to be people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language that ultimately are saved because that is God's purpose But at the same time, the kingdom of darkness is going to continue as well. And the church is always going to have, to some extent, a pilgrim identity, an exile mentality, a remnant within the larger whole. Now, this theology is very deeply embedded in Reformed circles. It was not always that way. Postmillennialism was by far the historic and dominant position of Reformed Christians, up until the middle part of the 20th century. And why would that have changed? Well, I think you can largely associate that with two things. One, the social gospel in the early part of the 20th century that was the fruit of liberal theology, and we saw the very negative effects of that social gospel that now took a transformative approach to the gospel and said the gospel is not about the cross, The gospel is not about the resurrection of Jesus. You don't even need to have a historical resurrection. You don't need to have an inspired Bible. You don't need to believe in the miracles of the Old Testament. You just need to encourage people to be good people. You just need to pursue world peace, not world evangelization, but world peace. Well, we saw that, and I think it drove a lot of people away from a post-millennial perspective. The second thing, of course, was two world wars. If Jesus is on the throne, if He's reigning right now, if He has all authority in heaven and on earth, the nation should be stopping wars, not starting world wars. We shouldn't be escalating death. We should be diminishing death. And so in many ways, that historical experience, I think, drove many people away from a more optimistic eschatology. And so now you see, in a lot of Reformed spaces, not all by any means, a lot of Reformed spaces are dominated by amillennial thinking. Now, to say that amillennialism believes that the church will always, to some extent, be a remnant, will always be in exile, that this world is not my home, and that I am standing in distinction from the world which is under the sway of the wicked one, does not mean that all amillennialists have to be pessimistic. It doesn't mean that. It certainly doesn't mean that all amillennialists have to believe that the church is going to fail in her mission or mandate. But it does mean that all amillennialists have to believe something about that mandate that is substantively different than what all of the other postmillennialists believe. In an amillennial frame, the expectation of the Great Commission is not that the nations will be discipled but rather that people from every nation will be discipled. is not that the nations in general as a whole are going to flow to Christ, are going to remember and turn to the Lord, but rather that elect persons from every nation will turn to Christ, remember and serve the Lord. And so the millennialist is going to understand the Great Commission and the Dominion Mandate, and the relationship of these ideas and the progress of redemption a little bit differently than their other postmillennial brothers. Now, what we just call postmillennialism today, recognize that these distinctions are, are really only a little more than 100 years old. Uh, prior to the beginning of the 20th century, you basically had premillennialists and postmillennialists. And you had some postmillennialists that were more optimistic, and some postmillennialists that were a little more pessimistic. And the ones that were a little more pessimistic were we came to call amillennialists, and the ones that are a little more optimistic we came to call just postmillennialists. Well, most postmillennialists, as they describe themselves, believe that the promise of Scripture is that the world is going to be won to Christ. Not every person in the world. And not every nation in such a way as every nation becomes a truly regenerate and holy people. In fact, what you might see in many of the nations is something like what you see in the book of Jonah. Where Jonah goes and preaches destruction to the city of Nineveh, what does the king of Assyria do? He calls on the people to repent in dust and ashes and call upon Yahweh that he might be merciful. Now, do you believe that every Assyrian sitting in dust and ashes, repenting, praying, fasting, was sincere in that behavior? I I can't imagine that they were. But did Nineveh repent before the Lord? Yep, they did. They did, and they are by no means an, uh, an, an outlier in that regard. There have been many nations and many cities who have done similar things throughout the history, not only of Scripture, but the history of the world. The fundamental difference between amillennialism and postmillennialism is not in their belief that Jesus is reigning right now. Premillennialists will say Jesus is not reigning now. He's not reigning yet over his kingdom because he's going to come back before the kingdom begins, before the thousand-year reign begins. Amillennialists and postmillennialists both agree Jesus is reigning right now. He's on his throne He has all authority in heaven and on earth. The gospel's going forth and it's conquering the nations. God's will is being accomplished. The difference is in the scope of that promise. How far is the gospel going to make inroads into the world which lies under the sway of the wicked one? Are the nations going to be converted? Or are only people from the nations going to be converted? And there's another implication in that. If you are an amillennialist, you can readily believe that Jesus might return at any moment. It could be this evening. It could be tomorrow. It could literally be at any moment because you don't know when the requisite number of elect converts has been reached that we've got the last one and now, now it's over. Jesus comes back and we go to judgment in the eternal state. But if you're a post-millennialist, you're probably going to believe that Jesus' return is not for a long time yet. And you might think immediately, well, pastor, isn't that kind of a dangerous and unbiblical idea? I mean, doesn't the Bible tell us to watch and be ready? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And there's two things to say about that that we'll have more to say about as we continue this series. The first thing to say is that context matters. And the passages that you're thinking of, where the New Testament is telling disciples to watch and be ready, are talking about a very specific day of judgment, but it's one that's already passed for you and me. It's typically looking at the judgment of Jerusalem in AD 70, and that's the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord's coming that the disciples were told to watch and be prepared for. So context matters. We don't want to simply take those instructions and rip them out of context and apply them to ourselves in an inappropriate way. Because, for example, the same instructions tell us that when we see the city of Jerusalem surrounded by armies, we are to flee to the mountains. Well, Are we still waiting to do that? And do we need to have a go-bag ready so that when we see on CNN that Jerusalem is surrounded by somebody's army that we can go flee to the mountains of Judea? Right? That doesn't seem to make sense, right? Context matters. The second thing to say, though, is that there is a difference between a posture of watchfulness and readiness, and an expectation that Jesus' return is just around the corner. There is a difference between a posture of watchfulness and readiness. That is something that all Christians are to have. Because I don't know when Jesus is going to return, but I know that I could kick off at any moment. I mean, it could be this evening, right? I could fall dead while I'm standing right here in front of you tonight. And I want to live as a man who is prepared to step from this life into eternity. I want to be prepared to blink and the next thing I see is the face of my risen Savior. And so I want to live every day as if I were ready to be called to stand before the Lord and give an account of my life. And that doesn't necessarily depend on when Jesus is coming back or how that figures into the future history of this world. I need to be watching and ready at all times because that's the proper posture for the Christian. There's a basic difference between postmillennialism and amillennialism in terms of the level of optimism with regard to that mission. How far is the gospel going to go? How great will we see these promises reach? Will we see the earth subdued? In other words, you could frame the question this way. The world lies under the sway of the wicked one, but is it supposed to? And is it always going to? So those are some of the questions that you can have in your mind as we're beginning this study Right now, You'll see on that second page, the back page of your handout, these two other charts, one of which lays out kind of a dispensational premillennial view, and the other of which actually works, whether for amillennialism or postmillennialism, the only difference between those two being the extent to which the gospel prevails in the present age. So is that thousand years... Uh, just a description of the entire church age. Is it a description of the, of the last period after the gospel has largely won the nations for Christ? You'll, you'll find postmillennialists that disagree about that. But Jesus is on his throne right now. His kingdom has been established. And what does the Bible say? His kingdom is like leaven that you hide in a lump of dough. And what happens? There's just a little pocket of yeast that forms and the rest of the dough remains unleavened. Right? No. No. You hide, the, you hide the leaven in the lump of dough, and the whole loaf is leavened. Right? That's, that's the picture. That's the promise. Or the, the rock that is cut out without hands, in Daniel chapter 2, that grows into a mountain, and then that, that, that rock smashes. You remember the empires? The, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, the Roman empires, the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It smashes the empires, and it grows into a mountain, and then the mountain grows until it fills the entire earth. So that's, that's what we believe is happening right now. But an all-millennialist is going to see that in a little bit more spiritual terms, maybe more figurative terms, and a post-millennialist is going to see that in a little bit more earthy terms, a little bit more physical terms. Those are general distinctions. Now, I um, don't have a lot of time, but let me press forward just a little bit. We need to make a point about the boundaries of Orthodox eschatology. Because when we talk about disagreements and debates among Christians, it seems like eschatology is the place where a lot of Christians believe you can believe whatever you want. And that's just not true. That's just not true. We have all kinds of disagreements about a lot of things that the Bible teaches disagreements about predestination, disagreements about church government, disagreement about the subjects and mode of baptism. We've got disagreements about eschatology as well. But the fact that there are some areas where we can have disagreements and yet maintain biblical fellowship and a a shared confidence in the authority and sufficiency of God's Word doesn't mean that you could just believe whatever you want. And there are certain boundaries that we need to recognize. For example, there is a doctrine known as full preterism. It's called by other names, realized eschatology, the 80-70 doctrine, that suggests that all of the future prophecies in Scripture, including in the New Testament, are fulfilled by the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And therefore, they would deny the bodily resurrection of the dead, and they would at least be agnostic about the possibility of a future bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another, and, and that idea, unfortunately, is growing in Reformed circles, and that's a bad thing, and we need to push back on that. There's some prominent people that have embraced it, uh, or at least seem to be embracing it, and and that's kind of made it cool for more people to to flirt with. That's, That's a bad idea that denies some things that the Bible requires us to believe. Another idea that has also gained some traction, even in Reformed circles in the last several years, is a form of annihilationism. And the form of annihilationism that seems mostly to be getting attention right now is what is often referred to as conditional immortality. It says that the human person is not by any created nature immortal. His soul is not immortal, that immortality is the gift of grace. And that means that the souls of the damned, though they may go to hell for a period of time, though they may suffer for a time uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in a manner commensurate with their evil, they will eventually cease to exist. They will eventually pass out of existence. And and that's an attractive idea to a lot of people for reasons that are probably immediately obvious, but it ultimately denies the idea of an unending and conscious experience of punishment in hell. But that also denies something that I believe the Bible requires us to affirm. A third idea that I don't think is getting traction in the Reformed world right now, but nonetheless is always kind of right there on the fringes of the Reformed community, and that is universalism. Universalism says that all creatures, and for many Universalists, that would include Satan, will one day be saved. Now, how that's going to happen is a matter of some debate. How it's going to happen, the mechanics of how that works out, there's different theories that could get you there, but it's an attractive idea, isn't it? I mean, if we want to be optimistic in our eschatology, if we want to believe that the gospel is more powerful than sin, that the work of Christ is more powerful than the human will or the rebellion of Satan, that's a kind of an attractive idea. If we believe in sovereign grace, we certainly believe God could save every single person, and maybe one day he will. Except that universalism really denies the repeated affirmations of Scripture that the damned will remain impenitent in their rebellion and consequently will continue to experience the punishment of hell. What I've given you on your handout is what I refer to as the four eschatological minimums on which all Bible-believing Christians ought to agree. Maybe you could add to this, maybe you could say there's something missing here or something that ought to be broken down a different way, but it seems to me these are the four that need to be on the list. One, that we affirm Christ's future visible return to earth. And by visible, I mean bodily. He's not coming back uh, metaphorically. He's not coming back uh, in some kind of figurative manner. He's coming back to earth, and he, he will be seen. He's coming bodily again. Secondly, we affirm the future bodily resurrection of the dead. The idea of the resurrection of the dead is not a biblical motif merely. It's not just figurative language for some spiritual event. It's an actual thing that's going to happen one day. We've preached a lot of sermons on that, especially around Easter. Third, we affirm the future final judgment of the entire world. There's a sense in which when a person dies, their eternal state is already manifest. And yet the Bible, I believe, requires us to believe that one day all people will be gathered before the throne of God and Christ will administer judgment, welcoming the saints to everlasting joy and banishing the wicked to the punishments of outer darkness. And fourth... We affirm the eternal reward of the righteous and the eternal punishment of the wicked, and that those are unchanging states because the wicked remain impenitent in their sin. Now, I would like to add a fifth point to this, and I would like to say all Bible believing Christians also affirm that they are optimistic about the future of this present world. It seems like we ought to be able to agree on that. However, we draw out our millennial position, whatever we think about the mechanics of how we get there, I'd like to say that all Christians are optimistic about the future of the present world, but of course I can't say that. All Bible-believing Christians are optimistic about the future, but many of them are optimistic about the future because they believe that God's going to destroy this world. He's going to get rid of the problem, and then things will be better after that. We've got about five or six minutes. Let me, let me finish up with one other idea about why this is important and then kind of walk you through the plan moving forward. Gerhardus Voss is well known for saying that eschatology precedes soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. It's the study of salvation. Eschatology is that area of theology that often gets tacked on to the end. Right? It's the last chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's the last chapter in every book of systematic theology on my shelf. But Voss would argue that actually salvation begins with the end in view. And that if you don't have the end in view, you can't know where you're going. The, you know, the scene, I haven't referred to it in a while. I've referred to it a lot. But it's been a little while, so I can tell it again. Right? You've read Alice in Wonderland, I'm sure. Not just seen the Disney movie. And so if you've read, uh, Alice comes to a fork in the road and the Cheshire cat is there and she asks, which way am I to go? And the Cheshire cat asks, well, where do you want to go? And she says, it doesn't really matter. And the cat says, then it doesn't matter which way you go. Because if you don't know where you want to go, it doesn't really matter what road you take, right? You could drive to the east or to the west or the north or the south. It doesn't matter. You just want to go somewhere. Well, you just go wherever you want. But God has an end in view. He has a purpose, In mind and so in that sense the Bible's entire discussion of salvation is in the context of eschatology and that's true by the way in Genesis I I, we'll see how how much time we have to unpack this but I think it's significant that Genesis chapter 2 lays out an eschatological view of man his creation his purpose his destiny Genesis 3 is the fall and God's provision for forgiveness and redemption. Eschatology comes before soteriology. In fact, uh, Voss says that, that in Paul's writings, Paul writes about salvation and what he writes, quote, derives its pattern from the eschatological scheme. In other words, the way that he talks about salvation is based upon his understanding of God's plan for the world and human destiny. And so R.J. Rushdoony said it this way, Uh, In a little book a number of years ago, quote, eschatology, the doctrine of last things, is also the doctrine of first things because it is concerned with the goal of history, of necessity, goals determine present day action. We are not motivated to action unless we know the purpose for our action. Specific goals motivate us. If we believe that the main and final goal of the Christian life is heaven or the salvation of our souls, we will be indifferent to history and the world around us. But if, in terms of Matthew 6.33, we believe that the kingdom of God and His righteousness or justice must have priority in our lives, then we will not have a self-centered view of salvation. Our personal salvation is not the focus and goal of the gospel but simply the starting point. The goal is God's kingdom, his purpose for humanity and the world, end quote. That's a really provocative idea. That's an idea we're going to try to unpack. That's an idea. If you may not be convinced of that right now. You may not be convinced of that after this series of classes, and that's fine. But I am going to try and convince you of that. That when you read Matthew six thirty three, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, You, like like me for many years, probably just have always heard that, have always read that, have always assumed that that's saying, pursue your personal relationship with Jesus and he'll take care of your physical needs. Live a spiritual life and Jesus will take care of you until you die. And then after you die, you'll go to heaven and be with him. But what Rushduni is pointing out is that's not what it says at all. It says, pursue the kingdom of God, not your private relationship with Jesus but Christ's rule in the present world. Pursue that kingdom. Pursue his righteousness and justice, and Jesus will take care of you. And that has much larger, in fact, cosmic implications. This is our Reformed tradition, by the way. This is the position of our Reformed fathers. I'm not saying that every Reformed theologian has been a post-millennialist, in fact, I would say that some of our Reformed fathers who have been postmillennialists might almost make you want to not be a postmillennialist. You've probably seen postmillennialism that turned you off. I have. And just to just to tell you this little bit of a personal story, many of you have heard this before, but for a number of years, for a number of years before I admitted to being a postmillennialist, I was asked, are you a postmillennialist? I would have people email me. I had people come up to me when I would guest preach at other churches, and they would say, so you're a post-millennialist. I said, no, 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 I'm an optimistic amillennialist, which I later figured out means I'm actually a post-millennialist. <laughs> but why were people saying that? Well, it's because I'd been praying the Psalms for a long time, and I had spent a lot of time living in the prophets and teaching through the prophets, and increasingly my prayers and my preaching had sounded more and more optimistic. But I thought I can't be a post-millennialist because I've known some postmillennialists. And let me tell you, I don't want to be like those guys. In my mind, I thought, well, if that's what postmillennialism is, that's not what I believe. That's not the stance that I take. That's not what I expect in terms of the future of the world. And then I started reading some books that helped me understand that historically, and especially during the period of the Puritans, postmillennialism was a general orientation. It was not a specific defined uh, plan of battle for the rest of human history, it was a general orientation and expectation that said the gospel is the application of the dominion mandate and it's going to succeed. The nations are going to become disciples of Jesus. The nations are going to remember and turn to the Lord. The world is going to be subdued to obedience to Christ. Not every person. But the world is going to be changed before the end comes. And when I realized that, I finally kind of came to terms with the fact that I guess I was a post after all, despite my protestations, right? So I don't want you to go into this study imagining, here is what a post-millennialist is, and I, I find that difficult to embrace or offensive. Or... Post-millennialism is a general orientation. And whether you identify yourself as a postmillennialist or not, you should, if you believe the Bible, be cheerful and hopeful, optimistic about the future. I would point you to Westminster Larger Catechism Question 191 and its exposition of the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, and encourage you to reflect on that as you pray the Lord's Prayer at least every Lord's Day, and maybe some of you pray it once or twice or three times every day, the way the ancient church did, if this is a correct exposition of that second petition, well, you're already praying like a postmillennialist, whether you realize it or not. I want to convince you to have a more optimistic perspective, whatever position you take, because I believe that a pessimistic orientation does not honor the teaching of Scripture or the Lord of history. I realize that all of of my friends who are more pessimistic, whether they're amillennialists or premillennialists or whatever they may be, they, they hold that view because they believe the Bible teaches that. They believe the Bible obligates that. But I want to suggest to you that the general tenor of Scripture, the general trajectory of the Bible actually leads us in a different way. So let me tell you where we're going to go. I've given you these 15 points. And as I noted on your handout, I reserve the right to add, delete, rearrange, or simply throw up my hands and quit. (laughs) But this is the general plan of attack. Some weeks we may take one of these ideas. Some weeks we may take two or three. Some of these ideas, some of these points may take us multiple weeks to explore. I've got a general idea about how long this is going to take. And I'm not going to tell you what my general idea is because my idea about those things is consistently wrong. But this is the plan. The 15 points that I'm going to try and show you in Scripture to convince you of a more optimistic eschatology. Jesus came to save the world, and he will. It is the straightforward reading of many Old Testament prophecies. It is the straightforward reading of many New Testament promises. Idealism, which is a very common way of interpreting the book of Revelation, uh, especially in the Reformed community. Idealism cannot do justice to biblical prophecy. And preterism, preterism is the idea that a prophecy or many prophecies have already been fulfilled. Preterism leads more naturally to postmillennialism than to amillennialism. I want to show you why I think that's true. Number five, death is the last enemy that Jesus will destroy, not the first. The last. Not the first. He's going to subdue all other enemies, and then he's going to throw the grim reaper into the lake of fire. Six, Christians still pray, thy kingdom come. Why are we still praying that if we all postmillennialists and amillennialists believe that the kingdom has already been established? That's something that every amillennialist agrees with. Why are we still praying, thy kingdom come? It's because it's already, but not yet. It's because there's more coming to see. Number seven, the coming of Christ changes things for the better. Number eight, the Christian's hope rests in God's sovereign rule, not in escape. Number nine, the Great Commission is a command to disciple the nations. Number ten, God's covenant of grace extends for a thousand generations, and we're not even close to that. Number eleven, the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and Savior. Number twelve, the conversion of the world need not fit our preconceptions. Number 13, progress is perceived by global history, not local current events. Number 14, all amillennialists are postmillennial. And number 15, biblical eschatology, though realistic, is always optimistic. So those are the 15 points that I'm going to try and walk through with you over the next several weeks. And I hope that will not be boring or daunting Uh, but at least now you know what we're going to be doing. So you can decide what you're going to be doing next Wednesday night and on the weeks following.